Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I've got the great pleasure of speaking with Zachariah Thomas, PharmD, about his article, A Multicenter Evaluation of Prolonged Empiric Antibiotic Therapy in Adult Intensive Care Units in the United States, which is published as a feature article in the December 2015 edition of Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Thomas works as Director of Global Health Science at the Medicines Company in Parsippany, New Jersey. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Thomas. Thank you for having me. appreciate it. Your article, I think, is really valuable. It provides some real-time um, and prospective information about how we perform. I think many of us who practice in intensive care medicine probably think we're doing a great job and we're in de-escalating antibiotics that are started empirically. But your your article certainly points to potentially, uh, I guess we don't really have the complete story, but potentially some um, discrepancies in the way we, we actually practice. And I, I was wondering, maybe you could begin by talking about what, what got you interested in this particular topic and how you got the group together to perform this study. Sure thing. So, you know, before I got this, um, started my position within pharmaceutical industry, I was a clinical pharmacist at Hackensack University Medical Center in New Jersey and faculty at the School of Pharmacy at Rutgers. For the last 10 years or so, I've been rounding in critical care units, specifically in surgery and trauma. And, you know, as a clinical pharmacist on rounds, one of our priorities are always kind of to ongoingly evaluate antibiotic therapy. And there were, you know, many times in my own personal experience that we would start empiric antibiotics, as we all know that there's not a lot of room for negotiating in terms of starting antibiotics. But, you know, depending on a variety of different factors, patient-specific, attending-specific, et cetera, et cetera, sometimes those antibiotics wouldn't always be peeled off, you know, when we've kind of had some pretty firm data to suggest that the patient wasn't infected. And, you know, in 2007, the Canadian Critical Trials Group had published a very interesting article in intensive care medicine looking at prolonged empiric antibiotic therapy in, a, in somewhat of a retrospective fashion uh, of a prospectively collected database. And they found about 60% of patients um, were treated with at least four days of antibiotics who, through a committee that adjudicated infections, were thought not to be infected. And that, that struck me as a pretty high number. And what was also concerning in this particular article is that they were able to correlate this prolonged empiricisms with increases in mortality through even after adjusting for known risk factors. And another thing that was very interesting about that article is that it suggested that one of the most important factors that seemed to drive empiric antibiotic use was where that patient which hospital that patient was in, in this multi-center study, which made me and a couple of colleagues begin to wonder, like, what could be some institutional factors that may potentially influence rates of um, empiric antibiotic use? And specifically, we were interested in, in things that could modify the PEAT rate, as we call it, the rate of prolonged empiric antibiotic therapy. And so you collected the information on antibiotics over a, a 24-hour period. Is that what I gathered and looked at how long those antibiotics were continued and also evaluated uh, as best as possible whether or not the patient had, I guess, CDC criteria for infection. Is, that, is this correct? Right. That is correct. So basically, this is a 72-hour snapshot. So the study day one was basically we evaluated all patients in, in the 
ICUs that were enrolled in the study. And this study was done in collaboration with the Critical Care Pharmacotherapy Trials Network, um, which is actually a group of critical care pharmacy investigators that have been doing these type of prospective snapshot studies since 2007. So we, we got some interest in this group in, in executing this study, and, and you know this was done really without any funding. So a lot of pharmacists were interested in kind of examining this question. So basically, we had a 72-hour window. In that first 24 hours, we evaluated every patient in the ICU, and basically we focused in on those patients who were receiving empiric antibiotics. And we wanted to know what proportion of those patients receiving empiric antibiotics or what proportion of those antibiotics that were being used for empiric therapy were continued beyond 72 hours in the absence of adjudicated infection. And as you mentioned, we used the CDC criteria to adjudicate whether or not patients were infected or not, which is, you know, obviously um, one way to do it, probably not the most robust way, but in the, in the setting of this trial, you know, without any real funding, it would have been hard to kind of really... Um, amass a, a clinical adjudication committee, for example, to look at each and every infected patient. So it is one of the limitations of our study. And you also looked at institutional and organizational factors that may have been associated with uh, increased PEAT rates, as you call it? Right. And, you know, this is not a new problem. And, you know, the decision to when to stop antibiotics has been a focus of many individuals and lots of research has been published. And there's all sorts of tools out there, you know, whether it's using, you know, procalcitonin or PNA fish, Bronx BALs, et cetera. All these things do have some data to suggest they could help in this particular process. So we wanted to see, one, what institutions were using this routinely? And second, could we make any correlations? And obviously, this is a secondary endpoint which is also subject to a lot of limitations as well in terms of multiple comparisons. But the only thing that we found that may be predictive of PEAT rates was the use of invasive techniques to diagnose nosocomial pneumonia. And those institutions tended to have lower PEAT rates. But again, we would need to confirm those findings. But I think one of the major takeaways from that particular analysis was that a lot of these tools that have been developed are actually not being used commonly in intensive care units, at least the ones that we studied, uh, which to me is kind of a little bit puzzling because I think there's a widespread agreement that it's difficult to diagnose infections in critically ill patients. It's difficult when to make a determination to stop antibiotics in those who are culture negative, so to speak. And yet a lot of these tools that could potentially assist in that decision-making are not being utilized. And unfortunately, we weren't really able to explore the reasons behind the low utilization of these practices. And you're uh, speaking specifically regarding procalcitonin and C-reactive protein and those types of markers right. so, for infection? Yeah, so we looked at biomarkers, but even things like, do you have a ventilator-associated pneumonia guideline? You know, many of the institutions didn't. And even the ones that did have nothing in their guidelines about when to stop antibiotics. You know, clinical decision support software, you know, embedded in the EMR is a potential tool. You know, there, there have been groups of investigators who have validated scores. So beyond the CPIS score, you know, Jean-Louis Vincent and his colleagues have developed the infection probability score. And that's, you know, that was not being used in any of the intensive care units that we utilize. And many of our site investigators had never even heard of such a tool. So, you know, there may be um, a problem in kind of getting these tools out to the public at large, the critical care community at large, or maybe there's just a lot of skepticism around the actual utility, 
you know, specifically about things such as biomarkers or, you know, there's been a lot of controversy around CPIS scoring as well. So maybe everyone is just kind of not doing these things because they're just not convinced yet about the utility of them. And these ICUs, was it a, a mix of academic centers and non-academic centers? Or yeah. Was it predominantly academic centers? It was definitely a mix. The majority, however, were teaching hospitals, but, you know, there was a mix of university teaching and community teaching hospitals as well. And we should point out that uh, overall, the majority of empiric antibiotics were actually continued longer than 72 hours. Yeah, so, so we're right around the, the middle of the waypoint. Around 50% of the antibiotics in our study were continued beyond that 72-hour time frame, which we consider to be a prolonged empiric antibiotic therapy. And you could argue that maybe 72 hours is not enough time. We picked 72 hours, you know, based on recommendations from the CDC as well as, you know, looking at the pneumonia guidelines, for example, about what time frame is reasonable to, to make that reassessment. And I, I think most institutions, you know, would agree, if, you know, 48 to 72 hours seems like a reasonable threshold. You know, and although we report that 50% of all empiric antibiotics are continued beyond 72 hours, I don't think it's as bad as that. Because when you look at the actual antibiotics, you know, as, as everyone could guess, you know, vancomycin and zosin are the two most commonly started antibiotics for empiric therapy, and they're also the two most commonly continued antibiotics. And, you know, I, I think vancomycin, for example, is a great place where we could potentially have a an easy start about tackling the problem of prolonged empiric antibiotic use because there's some useful tools out there to kind of, you know, better tailor which patients are going to be likely to have MRSA infections versus those who are not. And if, if we could just cut down antibiotic use specifically in vancomycin, you could actually bring that rate down significantly. But what's interesting, and we don't really know the answer to this question, is like, you know, we worry about prolonged empiricism because, you know, it can have side effects in patients, it could lead to resistance within patients, but certainly it, it could also exert resistance pressures overall, right? But we don't know, like, you know, if you reduce antibiotic use specifically in one particular category, like if you only focus on vancomycin and, and didn't tackle the zosin problem, which I think is a little bit more difficult, you know, would that really reduce and improve the things that we're most concerned with? We would definitely need to study that a lot more. And in terms of vancomycin, just for the listeners, are you speaking of MRSA-type screens to limit the use of vancomycin or, or other tools as well? Right. So the MRSA screening, I think, is, is a great place to start. You know, the data is, is pretty consistent that it has a high negative predictive value. So again, all these patients, we're we're not saying, you know, don't start vancomycin because I think, you know, that's a difficult recommendation to make. But, you know, when this patient has gotten three days of vancomycin, 72 hours of vancomycin therapy, and you don't have any compelling indication that there's MRSA around, whether it's through screening, whether it's through, um, you know, penicillin binding protein screening, all those things can help you have some a lot more confidence in discontinuing vancomycin. And a lot of institutions are doing those types of things on a routine basis. Yeah, it seems, uh, in my experience, it's like always a conundrum in that, you know, the patient may improve and, you know, clinicians will attribute that improvement to the use of antibiotics, even though there's no clear evidence of infection and have difficulty, I think it's almost at an emotional level, discontinuing antibiotics. Yeah, and, that, and that's going to be very hard to study in a controlled clinical trial because, you can imagine there's going to be a lot of protocol violations and protocol deviations if if you force clinicians to stop in a in a clinical trial. 
But that's one of the biggest arguments out there, you know, is that, you know, improvement may be, you know, and we don't know definitively, but it may be related to antibiotic therapy. But, you know, in many patients, I think, you know, when you look at prevalence of MRSA in most intensive care units, over the years, it's been declining. And again, I, I think of, of all the places to start in tackling prolonged empiricism, vancomycin may be the place we're, we're most likely to have initial success with. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I was curious about your, your thoughts looking at table three and the, the various institutional factors that most of them weren't able to be correlated with peat rate. But one, there was a strong trend and it was in kind of the opposite direction that one might think of. So it says, does your institution utilize guidelines or clinical pathways for the treatment of infectious diseases? And the institutions that responded, yes, actually had a trend towards a higher rate of peat. Am I reading that correctly? doesn't quite meet statistical significance, but it... Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't tend to read it, read into it too much, though, only because, yeah. you know, I think a trialist would say, like, something like Table 3 is like a classic example of, of multiple comparisons, and, you know, th- they would say you may need a much more stringent p-value than even 0.05 to really call something point, significant yeah. in this. So this, I think, it very well just may be the play of chance in something like this, because like you... You know, it's hard to kind of come up with a compelling reason why that would be. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense intuitively. And if it did, you know, come out to be statistically significant, we would definitely have to discuss that in the in the manuscript as to, and I think we would just attribute that to the play of chance. Yeah. It's certainly, you know, one, one possible uh, answer is, as, as you pointed out, that many of the clinical pathways and guidelines, while they guide initial treatment don't necessarily guide uh, stopping antibiotics. And I wonder if when we have those guidelines, we, we probably use the correct upfront empiric antibiotics, but then then uh, have a less likelihood of, uh, of actually stopping them. Yeah, that's actually a plausible explanation. I could understand yeah. what that would be. You know, it, it's just really interesting. And I'm just sure, you know, anybody who's, who's worked in intensive care now, this is one of those, those tricky things. You know, you never want to stop antibiotics in a patient that needs them and you never want to continue them in a patient who doesn't. And it's just, right. um, you know, it, it's an area that I feel like, you know, I, I think through the efforts of the society, the message has gotten out there for the most part about how critically important it is to start antibiotics. But I think we need to start having some conversations about how do we know which antibiotics we can stop, when we can stop them, and what will be the impact on that patient? Because as you mentioned, some patients may improve, but it's really interesting. There's a, you know, a couple lines of data now that suggest that this prolonged empiricism actually may also be harmful. So, you know, there really is two sides of that coin about prolonged empiricism. That's a great point, and I think that's an important point to get across, uh, the idea that uh, prolonged antibiotics actually may be harmful, because I think, uh, I think clinicians are, are a little bit loath to think in that direction. Yeah, and to be honest, you know, it, it it's not front and center just yet. But I think you know we've all seen it. You know, you know, working in a trauma ICU, you know, it's those sickest patients that get who are all banged up that get these prolonged empiric courses of X, Y, and Z. They have these prolonged antibiotic, these prolonged hospital stays, and then sometimes they'll die, and they'll die infected with you know multi-drug resistant pathogens, for example. And and you wonder, you know, did we set them up for that by continuing antibiotics because they were so high risk to begin with. But, you know, we'll just never have a robust enough st- 
study to really answer that question. But I think studies like this are just important because they help start the conversation. And this is, you know, one area that I think we haven't really been talking much about as critical care practitioners. And I think it just helps to kind of raise some awareness about this issue. And, you know, we're hoping that other institutions and groups will kind of pick up this mantle and, you know, conduct their own evaluations of prolonged empiricism. Great. Are there um, next steps for you or the, the critical care pharmacotherapy trials network? Um, you know, we're always seeking, you know, proposals for studies and things like that. So, you know, there's nothing as a direct consequence of this particular study in, in works just yet. You know, but we often joke that, you know, we'll do a repeat PEAT study. And, we you know, we've already got a fancy acronym for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, maybe it's in the cards for the future, but you know, not quite yet. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I don't know if you have anything else that you wanted to get across. No, I think we, we, we covered all the basic pertinent points. So, you know, just in summary, you know, we we did this cross-sectional study. We found, you know, a certain percentage, right around half are continued. Vanco and Zosin um, are continued beyond 72 hours most commonly. And we just need to start talking about, you know, what are the potential consequences? Because we just don't really understand what is the risk-benefit ratio of prolonged empiric antibiotic therapy. And I think that's really the million-dollar question that we're seeking to answer, hopefully um, through other groups' research in the next couple of years. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your contribution in in our journal and in our uh, literature basis, and thank you for your time for this podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCM is an associate professor of surgery at Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University in the Division of Acute Care Surgery. He is director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Center for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the ICU, communication and language in medicine, clinical ethics, and global surgery. Board certified in surgery, surgical critical care, neurocritical care, and hospice and palliative medicine, Weinstein is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American College of Critical Care Medicine. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.